Welcome back. Oh. Welcome back to the live podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. Today's tremendous episode was with one of my preferred runners in the world, Mr. Sanjay Rawal. Um, he is a documentary filmmaker. He is a yogi, a meditator, tremendous human being. Uh, just finished up a documentary called 3100 Run and Become, which is pretty fascinating story, that thing. So it's a race that's 3,100 miles in total. Uh, it's called the Self Transcendence 3,100 Mile Race. It takes place in Queens, New York. And uh, they run around one city block for, it says here, 59 miles a day for 52 straight days to complete the event. Sounds crazy. Anyways, this conversation was really tremendous. Getting all sorts of spiritual stuff and uh, movement stuff and mind-body stuff. And I got to learn a lot. Thank you so much for tuning into the website, alignpodcast.com, A-L-I-G-N podcast.com. On there, you can start the five-day movement challenge, which people have been digging, and I appreciate that. Uh, it's five fundamental movement patterns that everybody ought to have in their daily experience. And it's right there for you, all free, alignpodcast.com. Get on it. Um, thank you so much to Blue Blocks for supporting this podcast. Blue Blocks is some of the steeziest blue blocking evening glasses and daytime glasses as well. They block it from if you're in some artificial crappy lights during the day, it's going to be helpful as well. Uh, I use them most often in the evening, especially when traveling, airports, any of that stuff. Uh, about a couple hours or so before bedtime, you want to make sure that you're blocking out those blue light frequencies from your eyes and these little steezy glasses are quite helpful for doing that. So if you have interest in integrating blue blocking sunglass technology into your life, you can jump on to blueblocks.com slash align, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com slash align for 15% off your purchase of some of those mother flipping blue blocking glasses. Uh, if you give a dang about your hormones, give a dang about your sleep quality, give a dang about your energy levels, it's highly recommended to get those daggone blue lights frequencies out of your life and uh, throw in a pair of blue blockers before going to bed if you're exposed to those crummy lights. Junk light. That's a good term for it. Uh, all right, here we go. Back to the show with my man, Mr. Sanjay. I hope you devour this conversation. It was truly one of the finer conversations I think we've had on this co- on this podcast. So I uh, hope you dig it. It was recorded here in my sauna in Santa Monica. And here we go. Back to the show. Wow. Align Podcast. What do you think it is about running? You know, it's interesting because Sri Chinmoy, coming from India, said that running was the only exercise that connected your breath both to earth and to the heavens, to the inner worlds and outer worlds. Mm. The Navajo say when you run, you pray with your feet. Mm. Your feet are on Mother Earth. You're breathing in Father Sky. You're asking them for the blessings. Um, You're asking them to guide you to become a better person. And so running is this, this curiously hardwired activity that is our truest physical nature. It can connect us, whether you run at like a four minute per mile pace or whether you just walk. It's like it's the activity that when done contemplatively is the easiest way for the body to understand that there is a deeper and higher world. Mm. How has it shifted you? Is there any standout? Yeah. Oh man. So I, I, 
in, in preparation for, for making the movie, I entered myself into a six-day race. Now, I, I, I was a track runner, and I'd done marathons, and I didn't really know what to expect with the idea of running for six days. Now, <laughs> these races are held around one-mile loops. You put up a tent, and there's food 24-7, there's medical 24-7, and you're trying to do as many miles as you can in six days. Um, six days is a long time to run. So I ticked off hour number one, and it was just like, there's 143 more hours to go. Wow. Like, yeah, you're, you're sleeping three or four or five hours. But that kind of, the agony that that created in my mind instantaneously was almost <laughs> overwhelming. Because mm-hmm. let, let's say, let's say, you know, you were lifting and someone said like, yeah, you've lifted for an hour. You know, you've got to lift for the next 144 and we're going to measure how many, how much poundage you've lifted over those six days. You'd go like, I don't know how I'm going to enjoy this. So quickly required me in the first four or five hours to really understand what I wanted to get out of the race. Hmm. I got injured after 12 hours. You know, I, I pulled a hamstring. Um, but there were 75-year-olds, 80-year-olds on the course. So I told myself, you know, this isn't going to be an experience like, like the ones I've had in high school and, and further where I would win or I'd be in the top three. This is going to be an experience where, number one, you're going to learn some humility because the 75-year-olds are moving faster than you. Number two, it's like you have to try to find joy. You have to try to feel enthusiastic about where this run is heading. So I, I realized quickly that I needed to, to, to look at a different aspect of this race. Like I wasn't going to try to reach a certain amount of miles. I wasn't going to try to, to win. Um, I was going to try to stay in the race and find my sense of enthusiasm. And I was praying. It's like I had nothing to do for the next six days but to, you know, pray that I could run again. Hmm. You know, pray that I could cause I, I would see other people in the in the in the in the race running and I've i I'd never wanted to run more than I did then. And after the end of the fifth day, I suddenly felt my hamstring release mm-hmm. and I ran two hundred meters. And I said, Oh my God I mean, my, my, literally, I felt like my prayers were answered. And in the next 24 hours or so, I have never been as happy as I was in those 24 hours. Never. Um, and the emotions, the things I was feeling, the things I was imagining created a reality that put me in my best place. I was my best self then. And it was something that I now try to replicate in all my runs. Like I now look at running as a vehicle to being my the best person I possibly can be. And I never would have thought of running as being a tool to bettering myself. What do you think the transitions are in the evolution from starting the race? You got all your electrolytes and your gels, or you know whatever. Maybe you don't do gels anymore, but you know, and then you get in and. You, know, you get tired and then you, know, you think about stuff and then your hamstring gets pulled in quotations and then you overcome that and all of a sudden you come into this place of elation and then like what is the hamstring pull in the first place you know that, that, that yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah 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 <laughs> i mean that, that that i couldn't shake that period of elation i tried <laughs> like you'd go use the restroom you'd have a bite to eat and as soon as i'd get back out in the course it was there again. And, you know, I, I, I had a spiritual practice. I've been meditating for 26, 27 years. 
25 years of which was under the guise of Sri Chinmoy. So I, I had significant experiences in deep, deep contemplation and deep meditation. And I felt like I had access in that last day of the six-day race to all the higher parts of me that I'd felt in my deepest states of meditation. And I mm. couldn't shake it. And I realized that there is something about running that humanity has lost as a spiritual practice. I mean, even if you look at India, our greatest epic, um, our greatest spiritual book, the Bhagavad Gita, yeah. it took place between two warriors on the battlefield. You know, it was Arjuna being taught by Krishna. Arjuna, Arjuna was the best warrior of his generation. And you look at post-colonization India, or even India as, as, as a colony of the British Empire. If you had told Krishna and Arjuna thousands of years ago that one day a group of people would come off a boat and like conquer the country, they would have laughed at you. I mean, Indians pushed back Alexander the Great. We were warriors. Now, nobody thinks of India as warriors. And even the physical practices that people have taken from India are not ones that build brute strength. You know, they're, they're, they're yoga. And yoga is great. But the idea of Indians being inner and outer warriors has disappeared. I felt, you know, through running, for example, in that race, I felt that connection again. I felt that there were physical pursuits, running and obviously others, that can connect you to the deepest aspects of spirituality and enable your body to be a part of that journey where your body wasn't divorced from your spiritual life. You didn't have to shut your body down, live in a cave, deprive it of nutrients, energy, exercise, if you wanted to achieve the highest. So I'm curious, so I had a, a, a similar-ish sensation during uh, Vipassana meditation. And I've mentioned on here, so I'm not going to go into great detail about it, but just like extreme pain in my, in this case it was my hip. And then sustained that, just sat in the same position for something, 35 minutes or something like that. And then all of a sudden the pain just completely dissolved and it, it moved to another aspect it kind of like moved up my spine and then it kind of moved out into the shoulder and then it kind of got like restuck over there. And I was like, Oh, my shoulder hurts. But it, it, it caused me to reevaluate what is pain in the first place. You know, we have this mechanical interpretation of the body. You know, it's easy to be like, Oh, like a flat tire. Like, well, what happened? Well, a puncture happened to the tire and now your tire's flat, but something like a pulled hamstring. And then all of a sudden it just resolves itself through more, damage and quit like if your tire is mm -hmm. flat and you keep driving you destroy the car yeah it's not gonna get pumped up again <laughs> on its, own. it's not gonna get pumped yeah. up again yeah and we we, we, had, we had the same we, we had the same experience it's like you know yeah that's like you can really cause serious damage to yourself etc by ignoring warning signs at the same time every once in a while you get a lesson like you did and like i did that there's something in the body, there's something that controls the body that's infinitely more powerful than the body itself. And as long as we know who's in charge, and the body knows in charge, knows who's in charge, everything ends up resolving in a way that doesn't actually slow us down. Hmm. So, what do you think that pain is? What do you think that pulled hamstring is? I mean, it was real. It was it was a significant injury, and it to me it kind of represented the types of the types of trials and tribulations we go through in all of our lives. This was just a physical manifestation of, of pain. It wasn't emotional pain. It wasn't kind of a mental pain. 
but at the same time to get through that pain and literally like your experience to transform it i realized i could do so with spiritual tools mm. and i didn't know so i didn't know it at the time but those spiritual tools were prayer they were enthusiasm and they were in a sense minimizing the power of that problem in 3100 run and become we follow uh, a finnish paper boy ashprihanal alto who has run the 3100 mile race 14 times. It takes place again on a half mile loop in the summer in New York City. So every single problem that your body can face, a runner in that race faces from blisters to heat stroke to dehydration to indigestion. But the question is, are those really problems? And how much of their force is minimized by the way we approach them? You know, obviously we can magnify problems in any aspect of our life by really making them bigger than what they are. But if we can understand them from what they, for what they are, and if we can inject some of our spiritual truth into it, like your experience in Vipassana, you can actually make the problem disappear. Hmm. And I think that's the trick. I mean, that's obviously, you know, one of the lessons that we've all learned in, 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 the, um, in the plunge pool. You know, yeah. it's like, I knew it was possible, obviously, by, by seeing Wim Hof and other people, but cultures have been doing that for generations. The question is, like, what does your mental attitude need to be? And thankfully, I had you to lead me through it. But what does your mental attitude need to be to minimize the quote-unquote problem of plunging your water in sub-50, de- your body into sub-50 degree water? Yeah. So what? how can common f- layman folk, I mean, I'm common layman, so how do I incorporate uh, spiritual tools into my life? I mean, that, that's a great question. I think the main goal is to understand that we can do everything in our life w- with the purpose of making spiritual progress. It's like, if you lift weights, what's your consciousness like when you lift weights? Are you listening to you know, a type of music that you wouldn't listen to in your meditation? You know, are you listening to the t- type of music that you know might not make you a better person? Do you have the, 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 the positive, encouraging atmosphere in your athletic pursuits that you want to cultivate in your own life? Have you created a barrier between your physical pursuits and your spiritual pursuits? Hmm. And so in, in terms of running, it's like once I started to see how traditional cultures used running as a spiritual tool, I realized I can't listen to my, my music. You know, it's like the music for running, and again, it's different for every sport, but the music for running is my breath. The music is hearing my feet on Mother Earth. And a Navajo medicine man made it clear to me that, you know, running on sidewalk, it's still running on Mother Earth. Running on asphalt, like Mother Earth is there. So it's not like you've got to be in the most pristine environment to feel the presence of Mother Earth and Father Sky. So what is going to make me most conscious of the spiritual parts of my being when I'm doing that physical pursuit? You know, obviously yoga, tai chi, kung fu, these are inner arts. And that's why a lot of people practice them for spiritual release, for spiritual progress. But weightlifting is too. You know, of all things, you know, Sri Chinmoy, the Indian spiritual teacher, took up weightlifting at the age of 55. And he quickly found really powerful mentors and a handful of old-time bodybuilders, Bill Pearl, Frank Zane, legends of the sport. Frank Zane, I believe in 1977, beat Arnold in the Mr. Universe competition, the only person in a professional competition to have beaten Arnold. 
And Frank spent an entire summer prepping for that Mr. Universe competition, not just physically, but he had a mantra. And he told himself, if I chant this mantra a million times over the next three months, I'm unbeatable. Hmm. And so he was up on that stage, and Arnold was in his peak form. Frank was in his peak form, but Arnold was a good seven inches taller, probably 140 pounds heavier or 120 pounds heavier, and Frank beat him. Frank had the inner strength that Arnold didn't. And so that's an example of somebody pulling in that type of intensity that you need to meditate, the type of intensity that you need to quiet your mind. He pulled that intensity into his physical practice. So that's the question. Like when you're trying to max out your lifts, where are you pulling your power from? Are you just in your muscles? Or are you in your spiritual heart? Hmm. Are you using your prana? Or are you using physics? If you use physics, it's like you're going to have a strong body, but you're not going to have a strong life. If you're using your prana, it doesn't matter if you know, you're know 6 foot 1 Aaron, or if you're 5 foot 9, 150 pound Sanjay, you know, we're going to make progress. Hmm. Was Frank Zane a meditator? Big time. Really? Frank Zane actually has a master's degree in Buddhist studies. Yeah, right. I heard that. From you, actually. Yeah. And, and, and Bill Pearl, <laughs> Bill Pearl is an exceptionally spiritual person. It's one of those kinds of people that doesn't know he's spiritual. Yeah. But those are the best kind, yeah, I think. If you know you're spiritual, you're probably in the way of yourself to some degree. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, you look at these guys in this sport where you go like, this, this is like, the most, you know, the classic, you know, misnomers, like this is the most mindless sport where people are just looking at the mirror and prancing around. But Bill Pearl, Frank Zane are so exceptional. And what they did doesn't just inspire people to like transform their physical, but it helps them to transform, you know, the way they even approach the sport. Well, even Arnold, he talked about, you know, like becoming the muscle, like going into the muscle. He was like, he was a psychonaut. You know, and he, yeah. and, and he liked to smoke pot as well. You know, but he was like, his practice of lifting weights was like, that was his secret weapon. Was that he literally takes himself, his mind, and goes into the muscle I mean, to that, create that strength. I mean, that's the interesting thing about today's day and age, where everyone, at least in my own opinion and, and brief research, almost everyone who's achieved excellence in their field, particularly sports, has realized that at that level, everyone's got the same genetic edge. Everyone's got the same access to nutrition. Everyone's got the same access to equipment. But what is the edge that's going to push you over the top Mm. of your competitors? People who've achieved the top, the top of the top, have all realized that they had to develop some type of inner strength. I mean, you look at someone like Tom Brady. You know, if you don't think that guy has a tremendous amount of concentration and meditative practice, um, that fuels his own athletic greatness, you know, we'd be mistaken. Carl Lewis, nine-time Olympic gold medalist, one of the greatest track and field athletes of all time, big-time meditator, big-time into prayer, and he would draw those powers to make sure that at the start line for his 9.9-second long races, there wasn't a single trace of negativity, that every single cell in his body was focused on that goal. And that didn't come from repetition on the track. That came from repetition in his mind and his heart. What does meditation mean to you? I think meditation is a, is a, is a 
different thing for everybody. I mean, ultimately, the practice of meditation means dissolving the thought process of the mind, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're in a state of, of absence. You know, when the mind slows down, other parts of our being, you know, begin to flourish. The soul begins to express itself through the heart, um, through deep connections to higher and deeper worlds. And so the practice of meditation is really one's own roadmap to their soul. Mm. You know, it's something that you develop in silent contemplation, but eventually it becomes something that you try to incorporate into every aspect of your life. Yeah. What do you think of the value of incorporating your heart into fitness and movement in your life? In the West, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm from East India, but I was raised in, in Northern California. Um, in the West, especially for, for young men, there isn't a focus or even any encouragement to develop those heart-like qualities. I don't know. Love, joy, sympathy. It's pansy stuff. Peace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get hard, yeah. man. What are you doing? But it's like, that's, that, those are the only things that make you happy. Right. in life and you can be jacked and you can be aggressive and you can be powerful and still have those heartfelt qualities but most people negate the heart for other aspects for mental clarity for mental agility for brute physical strength and again it's like you can become the most jacked most you know ripped most you know performative endurance athlete even in the world um, without using meditation without using the heart but if you want to become a better person, you can't hide from your own heart. Yeah. And so it's like if you're looking at just looking good, if you're looking at sports as just a way to look good in the mirror, you know, you don't need your heart. But if you're looking at sports as a legitimate way to become a happier person, you can't get there without your heart. Yeah. It's like you have, you grow a thicker callus than anybody else. Yeah. You know, but, but at some point you got to get it. Like it's not sustainable. Just living inside a callus. No, and, and this is this was the thing that changed my running. I finally realized that the question I needed to ask myself was, what do I need to do so that I enjoy running till the day I die? I see Bill Pearl. Um, he still wakes up before three and is in his barn gym at three in the morning. Not seven days a week anymore, but I think it's five or six. And he's in his mid-80s. So a long time ago, he told himself, or he asked himself, like, what do I need to do to enjoy lifting till the day I breathe my last? Hmm. That's what changed my attitude for running. I realized that, yeah, I love performance. I love the idea of racing because that gives my, my whole mind a, a sense of focus that it doesn't come from, that doesn't come from just repeating a routine. But at the same time, each and every run becomes a really, really important part of my spiritual practice. I don't want to just go out and do it unconsciously. Because I know that if I focus even a little bit on trying to use running to connect to the earth, to connect to the sky, to connect to nature, to connect to my own heart, I might not have that same kind of ecstatic experience as I did in the six-day race every time, but I will have glimpses of it. Just like meditation. You know, you're not going to have your best meditation every day, but hopefully you, you get a glimpse of that sense of peace each time you sit. What did you, what did you learn from spending time with the Botswana folks? I mean, that was trippy. The, the Kalahari Bushmen aren't the oldest tribe ever, um, but they say that every single person on earth has strands of their DNA that, is, that have come from the Kalahari. Mm. The Kalahari Bushmen mixed with every other tribe or every other species of, of humans uh, to create you know, 
the mix of humanity that's right now. You're like the Genghis Khan of Bushmen. Yeah, 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 yeah basically. <laughs> basically. So they've been living untouched, unperturbed in the Kalahari Desert for more than 125,000 years, until the last 20 years when companies realized that under this vast expanse of, of animal-less, lifeless desert sits one of the biggest copper reserves in the world. So now, now they're effectively screwed. But we spend time with them living in their traditional way. They're hunters and gatherers, which means that they chase these massive animals through the savanna by foot. <laughs> and you know, evolutionary biologists ha- you know, have, have realized that the only advantage that men and women had on the early savanna millions of years ago was the fact that we could carry water. We can carry water long distances. And so the Bushmen, they began a practice called persistence hunting, which meant tracking an animal, a big animal, chasing it, and chasing it and chasing it away from watering holes until it collapsed. Hmm. It was like, you know, gigantic antelope that weighed a ton. And you couldn't actually legitimately get close enough to it, even with a bow and arrow, to be able to, to wound it. But over 48 hours, you could catch it and then kill it and carry with your group of hunters the 2,000 pounds of meat all the way back to your village. And so we did that, you know? And I asked Bushman elders a simple question. I said, you know, evolution, and I mean, I put it more simply than this, but I said, evolutionary biologists look at, you know, the idea of us running as a natural extension of form. Like, we were built a certain way, so we ran. And because we could run, we could catch animals. And the elder said, no, that's not the way it works. The elder said, consciousness came first. It's like, we had a connection to Mother Earth through our breath. That enabled us to get the power we needed to catch these animals. And yeah, we Mm. we ran, but we didn't catch the animals because we ran. We We caught the animals because our feet connected to the power of Mother Earth. And that was it. It wasn't like we were great runners. We were connected, and that's what made us survive. And so that totally, totally changed my attitude towards, at least it, it, it blew apart the misconceptions I had. Mm. Like we weren't great runners. We were just connected. We were connected to all the energies around us, and that was the key to our survival, not because we had some type of physical advantage that other beings didn't have. It's like nature ran us. Yep. Yeah, and so like, you know, we're wandering through the desert with a Bushman hunter. It's sand, and there's little bushes everywhere. And the hunter was able to track animals based on what I thought was chicken scratch in the sand. Like, he knew, like, not only the species, but whether it was male or female, you know, how long it, along, how long ago it had passed through, whether it was pregnant or not. Oh. And I just saw sand. And they said, no, 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 this isn't like some necessarily some woo-woo thing, like, we just know what to look for. You know, we're a lot more cognizant of the cues that nature gives us than you ever will be. Mm. I mean, I know what a car looks like, right? And I know when something honks at me. Yeah. But that's all of the stimulus that we get, you know, walking well, around. The inverse, if you took a Kalahari Bushman into New York City, they wouldn't, they'd be oblivious to a lot of the, the social cues. They would be. But you know. the, the interesting thing is, like, they would see things. Uh, we, we, we brought one of our characters to New York, and he was able to identify birds. He would hear calls, and he'd go, oh, that's this bird, that's that bird. 
And I'm like, I thought it was all like pigeons and sparrows. And like, right. no, no, that's the point. Like, that's the one that's singing right now. <laughs> so it's like it, they made he made me look at New York City way differently than yeah. I did. But we're just we're just adapted to a different environment. Like, there's so many so many aspects of the environment that that you or I grew up in that they just would be oblivious to just that we were oblivious to that that chicken scratch I, I i agree and i don't think we i'm not advocating going back to some like a primitive style of living uh so to speak but even if you look at the way humanity lived 150 years ago we were much more connected to nature than we are now certainly like, like yeah we've made progress but do we also well, i'm not calling it progress i know i know yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like there's 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 healthcare and people live longer and so on and so forth. But it's like, what have we lost, and how can we bring those aspects back into quote modern life? How do we? I think that's the question. I mean, I, I, that, that, that's the question for 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 me. It's like it all starts with inner practice. Yeah. You know, it's like the world has changed, but the goal for human beings haven't. Right. You know, we still want to know who we are. We want to know what our place is in the universe. We want to know what our purpose is in life. And people have been asking those questions for 25,000 years. We tend to think as individuals living here and now that we're the first generation or first you know, like cohort of human beings to be asking these profound questions. And we tend to look for these answers on the internet and yeah. on social media. But these answers are in the Bhagavad Gita, they're in the Tao Te Ching, they're in these sacred texts that literally have come from the highest experiences that humanity can and will ever have. People have laid out the roadmap for self-realization, for self-discovery, for God-realization. And the question is, are we willing to accept that these answers are out there? Or do we want to kind of fo forge our own path and find out things on our own? Yeah, in relation like the progress or digress or whatever. There's like Alan Watts. He has a a bit where he talks about we're we're confusing the menu for the for the meal, you know. And I think that that yeah. that nature is the meal. And you go out and you look up in the stars. You go, Whoa. you take a breath in, you know, and you yeah. you know you have like real food, and you like you grow your own food, and you have that connection, and you're and you're you know you connection with another person and you know all those things i feel like that's like that's that's the meal yeah yeah you yeah know? but now we have all these these menus all over the place that don't really have the same the same density of nutrients yeah you know it's yeah. kind of confusing yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm i'm totally with you <laughs> and i mean that, that's the great thing about sports because yeah. it's like when you're lifting you can't look at your phone can't. When you're running, <laughs> you can't look at your phone. When you're playing basketball, you can't look at your phone. When you're swimming, at least right now, you can't look at your phone. Yeah. And so it's like those are practices that if we incorporate them into our spiritual lives, I think people will be surprised at how effective they are. Yeah. What else did you get from the Botswana folks, the Kalahari guys? One thing that I thought was interesting is we, uh, I just did a released a podcast with Chris Ryan today, the Sex of Dawn guy. He's got a book coming out called Civilized to Death that kind of gets in all these conversations. And, uh, but he's talking about how like a bigger person, essentially me, who would like, I would never survive and, and which I agree. Um, but like my body type, you know, a bigger human being wouldn't do so well or like a sprinter body type. But then I heard you talking about, there is actually a sprinter that's a part of the persistence hunting. That's the thing. It's like, I, I always thought that like, like these 
hunters and gatherers were always like tiny, minute little beings that would like, you know, that survived based on their low caloric need, on their small physical frames. At the same time, you know, like humanity right now is a mix of a whole bunch of different ancestral body types. We used to think that Neanderthals were like the dumbest human beings on earth. And now people are realizing they were probably smarter than any other species. They were stronger than any other species. They just didn't have Achilles heels. They didn't have like the, the tendon that kept your neck from wobbling. Um, so they were sprinters. They weren't long distance runners. Mm. So at, at the same time, like hunters and gatherers were of every single body type possible. In my own opinion, you know, humanity didn't, wasn't really that nomadic. And so people evolved based on their particular environment. If you were in the Kalahari and you were six foot two, 250 pounds, chances are you die. But if you were in Siberia and you were five foot one, 88 pounds, chances are you die. <laughs> so people developed their strength according to the types of food and the types of practices that were required to survive in their environment. This day and age, we all eat the supermarket diet. You know, none of us are eating a diet that's really specific to the millions of years of genetic information that our bodies have programmed into ourselves. Basically, now, if you can't survive the first 12 years of your life on a McDonald's pizza and Coca-Cola diet, you're dead. Yeah. You see that. You know, it's like those genes aren't passed on. So you've got millions and millions of really highly specific evolutionary information that is totally forced to realign itself right now. Yeah. So that said, it's like traditional cultures give us that sense of the relationship that people had to their place. And I think that's a critical thing for us no matter where we live. I heard you, I don't know what culture, it was probably Kalahari guys, I'd imagine, but there, I heard you mention something about nutrition isn't the only place, like food isn't the only place that you derive nutrition. It's also from all the stuff that you're referring to. Yeah, it's, it's amazing because people are doing studies right now. People have studied hunters and gatherers and they've looked at people that are nomadic, that, you know, well, walk 10 to 20 miles a day or 60 to 100 miles a week. And they thought like, wow, those people must be expending a tremendous amount of calories. But they found that they actually expend about the same amount as those of us in a Western society that sit all day. Mm-hmm. Their metabolism is adapted. It's adapted. At the same time, I question the, the, the word adaptation because I look at the 3,100-mile runners um, 10 to 15 people come from around the world to do that race in New York City. And they're going slow. You know, 60 miles a day seems like a lot, but that's like, you know, walking briskly for 15 straight hours, which is not easy. It's not hard. Uh, they're doing a little bit of jogging, a little bit of walking, a little bit of jogging, and so on and so forth. Hmm. They're nowhere close to being anaerobic. They're nowhere close to being even at an aerobic threshold pace. Like their heart rates are pretty low. You know, if their max heart rate's 192, they're probably around 120. I've seen with the Bushmen, I've seen with these runners, that when you're at a kind of really minimal, Im- minimally impacted aerobic state, you can walk and run forever. <laughs> and your body, like, you know, we, we've all had the anecdotal experience of fasting. And you realize that after a couple of days of fasting, you're no longer hungry. Yeah. You're getting energy from something that's not kind of like calorically or physically possible. At the same time, when I see these people running these long distances, their bodies almost enter into a different state where the body understands like, oh, it's time to move. Yeah, we might be moving for two months, 
But that's something that human beings did for millions of years. Like you'd move from the winter home or the winter hunting grounds to the summer planting grounds, and you'd walk 500 miles in two weeks. And so I see that with, with these hunters and gatherers, and I saw it with the 3,100-mile runners, that they're getting energy from something that's not based in, in kind of specific modern science. Hmm. Where's that energy coming from? That's the, that's, that's the question. That's the question. I, th- I think the question is not just where the energy is coming from, but how can we unlock that? Yeah. You know, I, th- I think it's it's the same for whether someone is riding a bike or doing anaerobic exercise or doing like endurance running. You know, there's a state that we can get into based on our own kind of understanding of being, based on our own understanding of the heart of other energies. And we can begin to pull from that, but we can't pull from it spontaneously. You know, we have to practice it and it has to be a day-to-day kind of thing. Seems like a lot of our access to everything has to do with the story that we tell ourselves. Oh, yeah. You know, when you hear about like, it might not be, is it called hysterical strength? What is it called when you, you know, a car falls in your baby yeah. and you pick it up and you pick up like a 3,000 pound thing and you're like a little lady? I think it might be that. Anyways, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. You know, we have access to all of these different things. We have access to more flexibility than what we permit ourselves because our nervous system doesn't trust us to go into those ranges of motion. Same thing with strength, same thing with fasting, same thing with endurance. So I, I made a film that was at the Tribeca Film Festival and a bunch of others um, in 2011 and 2012 called Challenging Impossibility. Yeah. And if people look that up on Vimeo or Google, it was a movie about one night in 2003 when the then 73-year-old uh, Sri Chinmoy lifted more than 200,000 pounds total in a four-hour workout. And that included a 2,300-pound calf raise. It included lifting his body weight of 150 pounds 100 times in quick succession. And he was in his 70s. Bill Pearl was there. Frank Zane was there. My cats, Wayne D'Amelio, who was an IFBB judge. <laughs> Carl Lewis, a number of pro athletes. And here's a frail, 150-pound, 73, 74-year-old man lifting weights that these bodybuilders would never even attempt to lift in their prime. And Sri Chinmoy was only doing it to prove that inner peace was a legitimate source of outer power. Oh. And he chose that type of exhibition. And he, there's lots of little clips on, on YouTube of him you know, doing calf raise, levered lifts of planes, of elephants, things that are just massive. And you wonder, how is this even possible? But you're seeing it with your own eyes. Hmm. And that's the question. You know, if inner strength can create that kind of capacity for something so evident and so outrageous, can we use one-tenth of one percent of that to improve our performance in our own life. Yeah. I mean, I think Trump's a good example of it. And maybe not like lifting an elephant with his calf, but he doesn't seem that smart. <laughs> but he's the damn president. <laughs> and like one of the wealthiest or whatever we're yeah. called, person well, in the world. Like he started off with a rich dad, or, but like he's created some stuff. <laughs> well, well, so, so, so you, you, you can look at this kind of power, and I'm not comparing Trump with Hitler. I'm going to shift the example to someone like Hitler, yeah. where you can use it. Like Hitler, Hitler was an occultist. Yeah. Like you can use faith in the inner worlds for extreme positivity or extreme negativity. You can use positivity as strength. You can use negativity as strength. And there are, you know, and I'm, again, I'm not putting Trump in this category. I'm not going there. But there's plenty of cases of people that were some of the most destructive people in the world. And yet, they were so powerful 
nobody could stand in their way mm -hmm. from Genghis Khan to, you know, Roman emperors to Napoleon to, you know, this countless, countless people that are considered quote unquote tyrants. But you go like, how were they able to do that? Like, it's really hard. In, like in this example, I'm not going to name a name of killing 6 million people in Africa, in the Congo. It's yeah. really hard to like sustain that level of power. You know, it's coming from something. It's coming from someone's sheer devotion to an attitude that they've cultivated inwardly, in this case, something very negative, and they're able to manifest it, but it's still power. The question is, like, do you want to use your power to do good? Do you want to do your, use your power to destroy? Is your power to sow division, or is your power to sow oneness? So is it containing the power like like at first point it's like okay maybe figure out finding your power because it seems like a lot of people are just so scattered and distracted that it's like if the power is going through a hose they just have a thousand little punctures and it's just the hose just yeah i mean i there, there you you can use power in two ways again to destroy or to uplift but i guarantee you that the power of destruction never brings the person lasting peace yeah ever and in, in the in the in the span of history, there have been thousands of people from, from yogis who've taken on negative views of the world and developed occult power to destroy um, to military generals that have used you know, that kind of uh, connection to power to destroy. Their lives never end in peace mm. and happiness ever. And that's the one thing I could say about Trump. Like, he is not a happy person. Don't and no one, that. he doesn't even laugh. Like, and so it's like, do you want your, you want to cultivate power like he has to destroy people and not be happy? Yeah. Some people do and some people don't care, but I'm sure people who listen to this podcast, I would hope that, that all of them listen to the podcast to try to become happier, healthy human beings. I would imagine many people, whether they would agree with it or not, they would take just possessing power within themselves you know, be it for good or evil or whatever. Like, I think most people just don't feel powerful in the first place. Mm -hmm. Again, like when you're looking for that power, you have to have a goal from the beginning. You have to. Otherwise, you don't have the intensity to be able to cultivate it. And so you can have a goal of developing power to become successful, to become rich and destructive. Mm -hmm. You can. Or you can say, from the very beginning, I want to become a happier person and I need power to do that. I need power to be able to control situations that usually upset me. I need power to make very hard decisions in my own life. I need power to focus on my own goals of self-betterment and self-achievement. And those are all small steps either way. It's like, you know, to take that one good step requires a bit of a little bit of power, of, of, of good power. Yeah. And cultivating it depends on well, cultivating that power really depends on what your your intensity your intention is so a person that feels highly disempowered or out of control you know where do they start to get gather any form of of that word you know again this is why your podcast is great it's like what are your goals that's the first thing yeah it's like you just you mean you just can't sit and go like i want power i want power i want power <laughs> you know like it, 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 it it's not really the word work. doesn't mean anything no it doesn't mean anything what are your goals? Do you know what you want to do? Do you know what you want to be? Have you really spent the time to take the first step and develop that small sense of self-awareness to know what your problems are? 
to mm. know what you don't want and therefore to know what you do want. Mm. Do you understand what is stopping you from doing that? And once you understand that, you can begin cultivating the power. You can cultivate the power again to stop having bad relationships, to stop reacting in certain ways when your loved ones or your kids do certain things that are unexpected. You know, you can cultivate the strength to leave a job or to go back to school. But just by having that power doesn't mean that you've got the ability to direct it. And I don't actually think you can cultivate that power without some type of aspiration to be a better person. Hmm. What were the other cultures that you, you studied with? We spent, we spent time with the, the Navajo um, Native Americans in the Southwest and with the, the oldest sect of Japanese Buddhist monks. How did those three relate to each other, including the Bushmen? That, that's, that's, that's a great question. That's something we explore in 3100 Run and Become. The, the Bushmen, to me, are the kind of oldest living link to human beings as animals. And I mean that in a good way. I don't mean animals in, in the way that, that we, we act towards each other. But the fact that we are physical beings. Hmm. And the Bushman showed me that there are so many aspects of the human body, no matter what the body type is, um, that have so much potential and energy that are in absolute disuse. Absolute disuse. And it's not so much that we don't have the discipline, we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the connection to the earth. We don't have the connection with our feet and with our breath to the earth. Hmm. When I spent time with the Navajo, I spent time with a great runner named Sean Martin, who's part of an organization called Wings of America um, that cultivates the traditional practices of running in Indian country amongst Native American tribes in the U.S., so to speak. For them, the Southwestern tribes, Navajo in particular, running was a way to go from shrine to shrine. When you go to the Southwest and you look at Monument Valley or you look at the Grand Canyon, you go like, yeah, if I lived here, I would worship these places. I would worship these rocks, so to speak, because the land there, the obelisks, the monuments, the the steps, they've got such consciousness. And for the Navajo, each particular place has a particular divinity. And running is not just a way that they can get from place to place, but running is a way that they can literally breathe in that divinity. And so for them, and again, it's like, I'm no expert in any of these, but this was just my little limited takeaways. Um, for the Navajo, running itself as a prayer, it's the way that you imbibe all the positive energies around you to become better people in whichever way you want to become a better person, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a firefighter, whether you're a lawyer or garbage man or anything. Um, the Japanese monks um, in the highlands of Kyoto in Japan's most sacred mountain, Mount Hiai, they are on a different level. They practice a thousand-day trek, specifically in a quest for enlightenment. So for them, it's, it's more about the destruction of the ego, the, the dissolution of the ego, the, the negation or the complete transcendence of the physical body. Mm. Like you are just putting your body through such extremities that it's such extreme actions and practices that you eventually are no longer bound by the body. So they, they pick one aspirant every, every generation to do a thousand days of, of walking, running, split up over seven years. 
That's not the thing. If they don't succeed, they kill themselves. Yes. It is. Yeah. Okay. So the, the first you know, couple of years, you're doing 11 miles a day for 100 or 200 straight days. By the end, you're doing 56 miles a day uh, for 100 or 200 straight days. But at the end of the 600th day, you have to do an eight and a half day fast. Um, this is something that scares me, but it probably wouldn't scare you because we're sitting in your sauna. Um, <laughs> they have to do an eight and a half day fast which is not just no food, it's no liquid and no sleep. Mm. And that literally takes them to a state where they say, not only can they smell food from miles away, but they can hear the ash falling off of incense. It's like their consciousness straddles the world of the living and, and the worlds beyond. And it makes them obviously much more connected to their mortality and their divinity and from a practical sense, it makes their last 300 or 400 days where they're doing 56 miles a day seem like a walk in the park. Wow. But like you said, if they don't finish their daily mileage on any single day, they have committed to taking their own lives. Now, they don't think about that at all. You know, it's like you're trying to run and move in bliss. You're not trying to focus on, you know, your potential death. But at the same time, you know, since they began doing this nearly 1,500, 1,600 years ago, there are a few hundred people that have had to take their own lives. So it requires the ultimate commitment to that goal of enlightenment. What is that practice called? They are Tendai Buddhists, um, but the practice is called Senichi Kaihogyo, thousand-day monks. Thousand-day monks. And then what does that do to a person? You know, we spend time with with someone who who was... 100 days away from finishing. And you'll find out in the movie if he finished or not. Um, But we spent a lot of time with this teacher who had finished. And I've never met a person. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I should say that he was one of the few people I've ever met that had no sense of lethargy. Hmm. I mean, even us right now in the sauna, it's like, ah, I feel relaxed and comfortable. You look really relaxed and comfortable. (laughs) He was just like, no matter what position, no no matter where I would imagine him being, he's always super focused. Right. Super intense. And it's just like, (laughs) you're in the sauna. I'm not going to talk. I'm going to enjoy the sauna. I'm going to sit here for as long as it takes to have the experience of the sauna. Don't talk to me. Don't disturb me because the sauna is for breathing and for heat. We talk when I'm on the phone and you're on the phone. And then we're going to talk for six hours straight until we solve all your problems. <laughs> but it was just like you would see him move and you'd see him interact. And he was so conscious of time. Like he did not want to waste a second. It's like if I'm going to sleep, I'm going to sleep the best sleep. And it's going to be the minimal amount of sleep for me to get everything else I need done. Hmm. It was unbelievable. Like I've, I've, I've never met an athlete like that. I've never met a bodybuilder like that that had not an ounce of lethargy in him. Was he happy? He looked exceptionally clear. He looked exceptionally positive. He looked exceptionally motivated. It's not my sense of happiness. (laughs) You know, again, but it's like, I am not as disciplined as he is. Um, but he has found a sense of balance in extreme discipline. You know, I am a, a more, like we, we were speaking a little bit about this before we, we started recording. You know, there's, there's the yoga of love. There's bhakti yoga. 
there's the yoga of mental discipline, Gnana, Gnana yoga. So he's the Gnana yogi. He's the one who's trying to make sure there's not even an ounce of distraction in his mind. Yeah. I'm the person who's just like, I want to see love everywhere. I want to like, you know, enjoy the world purely from a sense of real pure detachment. But it's like, I like chocolate. There's nothing wrong with liking chocolate. <laughs> it's like, my my goal is like, no, not that I, I see this, but my goal is that, you know, I've got to understand that God is in the chocolate. Yeah, man. You know, that God is in the ice cream. God's in the prostitute. Yeah. <laughs> God's well, in the bar fight. Well, God's in the, God's everywhere, man. You know, Ramakrishna, one of the greatest Indian saints, went through 19 different spiritual practices, all to attempt if he could reach the highest stages of enlightenment through each of them. So he practiced Christianity until he saw Jesus Christ. He practiced Islam until he understood the, the all-pervasive nature of Allah. There are some tantric practices that required him to sit on the laps of prostitutes and to go into the highest levels of samadhi. Yeah. And he did. Mm -hmm. You know, he admittedly said many years later that those practices are much more challenging for the common aspirant than many of the others. Um, but there's nothing that's, that's illegitimate uh, in terms of the world of spirituality. Some practices, again, are much easier than others. So I wouldn't recommend pe recommend people to try to realize the highest sitting on the lap of a prostitute. Because <laughs> I don't think many people can do that. Yeah, I think it's just taking it in levels. You know, like in the Vipassana, they have, after you do, I, I believe it's four 10-day sets, they finally open up the access to doing the, the walking meditation hmm. where you go out there for another, I believe it's a 10-day one. I haven't done it, but you go out and you do that, and you, okay, cool, we're walking. <laughs> yeah, you know, we used to do a lot of walking meditation with Sri Chinmoy, and the first time I did it, it was in a summer, August, an August summer day in New York, about 98 degrees, you know, minimum, you know, really, really high humidity, and we were on this, this a space the size of a tennis court, and there was about 700 of us. You ask, how can you walk? It was like a snake-like procession hmm. where it's like every single ounce of that tennis court was taken, you know, by this like long snaked procession where a thousand of us were there. So you not only have the heat of the sun, you have the heat of everybody around you. You have the heat reflecting off of the ground. And it was, you know, not 10 days long, but it was 45, 48 minutes long. And the body becomes really, really, really uncomfortable hmm. in that situation. But at the same time, it's like there is a way to achieve an incredible amount of peace in that discomfort. I, I, I quoted something earlier, finding joy through exertion. And I heard that from a Hopi elder. Um, the Hopi uh, natives live effectively in what's now Arizona, but they live in an area that's considered to be the longest continuously inhabited village on earth. 6,500 years of life on, on, on first, second, and third Mesa in Arizona. And we were on a long prayer run with a bunch of Navajo, Hopi, Ute, and Zuni kids, um, and kids from the Pueblos. And as a benediction, he told us one morning, find joy through exertion. Hmm. Now, the 3,100-mile race is called the self-transcendence 3,100-mile race. Self-transcendence, meaning going beyond yourself, going beyond what you conceive of as your capacities, you know, going beyond what you conceive of as your limitations. And I realized, and that, that's, that's a term that Sri Chinmoy really loved to use. And in my own experience, he's one of the first people to actually use that term or coin that term for spiritual purposes. But you look at this 
very, very, very long-standing, ancient um, tribal um, people, the Hopi, finding joy through exertion is the formula for self-transcendence. Like, how do you go beyond your capacity? Like, number one, you have to exert. But going beyond, beyond your capacity, you know, requires you to use a sense of power that's much more emotional, much more metaphysical, much more enjoyable. So self-transcendence equals finding joy through exertion. And that coupling, you know, has really changed the way I look at physical fitness. And it's made me realize, like, people have been, like, practicing spirituality and physical fitness for a long time. (laughs) It feels like you almost need the body to become uncomfortable in order to transcend the body because as long as it's in that place of just basking in oh this is this is great we have you know the ice cream and i'm rolled up in the couch and i'm you know i'm like the body feels good yeah. there's no reason to go beyond it yeah yeah <laughs> you know? and it, also, it, it also gave me the kind of key that it's like when you're at a plateau and you're exerting and you're exerting and exerting and people always hit these plateaus and you're trying to go like how can i push beyond well, this is the key, and this is what you we talk, you talked about at the beginning. The key to pushing beyond your limitations is to doing so with happiness. Mm. You know, that's where in your practice of physical fitness, that's the spiritual aspect to it. It's like you make progress not just through physical exertion. Physical exertion will only take you so far, but you can go beyond any sense of limitation by using happiness as a raw power pushing through your plateaus with happiness. And I mean, that's that's a trick. It's like, it's not something you can do on a lark. It's something that you have to practice in your physical pursuits. But when push comes to shove in a race, in a competition, you know, when you're trying to do anything at, at your maximum capacity, that's the spiritual tool that allows you to do that. Where, from your perspective, and we'll wrap up soon, we can, the, the sauna thing's telling us, uh, I like having a little shot clock there. Yeah, it's telling it's us like, like you basket, guys are, basketball you, days. You guys are about to die yeah. in six minutes. <laughs> um, where, from your perspective, this is like a, a, like a Cohen, but where is the bridge between the mind and the body? Where is it located? I, I can only tell you what I've heard. It's the breath. Mm. You know, the Navajos say that when you mm. run, you... Your feet are on Mother Earth. You're breathing in Father Sky. Sri Chinmoy said, when you run, your breath connects you to the consciousness of both Mother Earth and to Father Heaven. You know, when you're lifting tremendous weights, it's like everyone builds up energy in their breath. You know, when you taught me to go into the the the, the freezer, the first thing you led me through was a 10-minute breathing exercise. Like, that idea of prana mm-hmm. is harnessed first in the breath. And the question with prana is like, how can you pull joy? How can you pull intensity? How can you pull inner peace into the breath to convert those energies into outer power? Cool. Is there a separation between the mind and the body? The mind likes to think so, right? <laughs> right? There never is. But the, the question is like... You kind of tricked me. I don't think you're going to have an answer. Yeah, but... <laughs> But the the question is, it's like what what, and not not that I do this, but I you know, like when you realize that you have a soul, and it's not that you just have a soul, but you are the soul, then instead of your inner life taking dictates from your body and your mind, 
your mind and your body take dictates from you. You know, that takes dictates from who you are. Like you are not the mind, you are not the body. Um, you know, those are things that you have, but that's not who you are. Mm. It's kind of like getting back into nature, moving you into running. Yeah, yeah. It's like who, that. That I mean, that's the prime question of any spiritual practice. Like, who am I? Yeah. You know, am I Sanjay? Am I Aaron? No. You know, I'm something that's existed long before I had those names. You know, yeah. I'm something that's going to exist long after. And like, what is that? And that's when you realize, like, you know, I'm not the body, I'm the mind, I'm the soul. And then once you even have the belief that you are not the body and the mind, it becomes a lot easier to have control over your body and your mind. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, man. It's been great. I mean, <laughs> I wish people could see us. It's like we've been physically transformed <laughs> in the last couple of hours. This has been the best experience I've ever had, you know, talking with somebody. Amazing. Really. Damn. It's been amazing. Thank you, brother. Likewise. And this is like, yeah, this is my favorite conversation. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is like, uh, where should people go? Where do people people go from here? So, the, the movie 3100 Run and Become, 3100 Run and Become is on Amazon, iTunes, uh, Hulu, not Hulu, but uh, Google, um, Play, Vudu, it's all over. Um, 79 Minutes. And uh, what we get from many people, even non-runners, is that the film blows their mind. Awesome. Because you see things in other people that we all want to have inside ourselves, but might not know it. Cool. Awesome. Social media, anything, place yeah. like that that's good? At 3100 Film. Great. Uh, and I answer everything. Cool. So that's me. What's next after here? Not that it's really relevant for this conversation, but do you have anything in the pipeline coming up? Yeah, I'm just finishing a film on the Native American food system with a bunch of Native Americans. Um, you know, when, when Europeans and people like me from India yeah. came to the U.S., you know, we, we came into a, a place that had a food system for more than 10,000 years. And the first thing that the colonial government and the U.S. government did was destroy that food system. And now when you see us kind of returning to nature, we're effectively returning to the food system that had been here long before we were. Native Americans were almost destroyed, but thank goodness for many reasons they weren't. Um, the film focuses on the aspect of their tremendous knowledge of the way people have lived in North America and the fact that they still hold secrets uh, to happy and healthy relationships with nature. And hopefully some of that will get infused into modern society for everyone's good. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, man. You. I really appreciate it. Oh, I had a great Next time. Next time, oh, yeah. wherever that thing's coming, please come back. Oh, we'll do, we'll do more sweating. All right. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Over now. Pow. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I want to present y'all with a fun opportunity of starting a program that I created called the Align Method Online Program that focuses on unwinding the unsightly patterns of staring into technology, essentially. So forward head posture, rolled forward shoulders, hyperkyphotic spine, disengaged glutes, knees collapsing in. If there's collapse in any level in the body, it will trickle up and down through the rest of the system. That program focuses on unwinding those things, giving you self-care practices, movement practices, and lifestyle adjustments, very subtle ones, that will give you all more flexibility, more strength, more confidence, more energy, all the good things. Um, and you can start the first week absolutely free and just go to alignpodcast.com slash align method, A-L-I-G-N method. 
Along with that guy, you will receive the Aligned Band, which is a heavy-duty resistance band with a door anchor. And that also comes with its own online program that is free with that thing. Go to alignedband.com and start that program for free. Um, I think that's it. I so greatly appreciate you guys listening to this conversation. So greatly appreciate reviews on iTunes, sharing uh, on the Instagrams or the Facebooks or wherever you do your shares. Uh, this program goes on, lives on because of y'all. So um, it doesn't go unnoticed. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reviews. Thanks for joining your life. Enjoy. <laughs>